good day and welcome to the Mercy Hill Podcast. My name is Lawson Harlow and I'm one of the elders here at Mercy Hill Church. What you are about to listen to is a sermon that was preached during our weekly worship services in Olive Branch, Mississippi. We hope that you will be encouraged by the preaching of the word as you aim to follow Jesus and make disciples. For more information about Mercy Hill Church, you can visit mercyhillob.org or you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash mercyhillchurchob. Thanks for listening. If you have your Bibles, Romans chapter 8 is where we're going to be this morning. In particularly, we are going to focus in on verse 29. So let me go ahead and give what I believe to be a rather important disclaimer. As we approach verse 29 and verse 30, we are walking into what is commonly referred to as the golden chain of redemption. That means that we are going to largely walk through what is um, perhaps a a point of study inside of theology, uh, which is commonly referred to as the order of salvation or the order salutis. Today, we begin that process by diving into really three major words that are laid out for us in Romans 8, 29, and those are pretty much going to be the points of the sermon, and the three major words that we're going to be dealing with is foreknown, predestined, and then conformed. Now, before we dive into that, there is just a couple of things that I want to to warn you of as we make our way into this. It really is interesting to me that the doctrines that are most clearly revealed And the doctrines that are perhaps the most grand and glorious, the things that should capture our eyes and stun us, are often the doctrines that we easily and perhaps most frequently recoil against. Today, I would ask, I would plead with you as we make our way into this to let the scripture be the authority to let the word of God actually conform us. The conclusion of this section of Romans is actually do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Brothers and sisters, I'm asking you today to come into this verse with me and allow the word of God to conform us, to mold us into the image of Christ. Why? How? By seeing the good plan of God and bowing and submitting under it. It is easy for us in the midst of glory and transcendence and wonderful beauty to long for something lesser. And perhaps it is that no verse of scripture has been more thoroughly assaulted, undermined, and redefined than the one that we have at hand. And so brother and sister, I invite you to come with me as we make our way into something that is transcendent, eternal, but should we walk away from this apprehending what this verse clearly teaches then I can offer you no greater security. I can offer you no greater hope. I can offer you no greater comfort than what we find in this particular text. And so with that said, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? Romans chapter eight, starting in verse 18 and making our way through verse 30. I would remind you, brothers and sisters, that what you have before you is the only infallible rule of faith and practice for the Christian life. Indeed, it is truth with no mixture of error. Romans chapter eight, starting in verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself would be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Father, we come grateful for revelation that reaches back into eternity. Lord, you had no obligation to disclose to us what you did before the foundations of the world. Lord, you had no obligation to reveal to us even your own person 
And yet, Lord, you have. And not only have you revealed to us your person, you have revealed to us not only what you have done inside of the creation, but Lord, we reach back in this text to eternity past. And Lord, I ask, I plead in the midst of astonishing glory, convey these things to us. Lord, may they be the pillow on which we rest our head. May they be the comfort in the midst of trial and tribulation. And Lord, whether that be in in health or sickness or Lord, life or death, remind us that this is a glorious anchor by which we stand. It is in the name of Christ and through his blood we pray. Amen. You may be seated. As we enter into this text, I really do feel the need to reach back just a little bit. The introduction to this text is actually with this simple word, for. And and the reason I bring up this word is because for really does imply something, and it really does reach back into Romans 8, 28. I know we walked through that pretty diligently last week, but just to kind of recite it to you, it says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. I want to add, if you will, one more reason that we know. We walk through various reasons that we can know, that we can have confidence in the reality that God is working together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And I want to really crescendo that no as we enter into verse 29. Because the real point of this simple word that says just for in our translation is really saying because of, because of this reality that we are walking into in verse 29, we can know and be certain that everything in Romans 8, 28 is certainly true. That we can rest our head knowing that God is working together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And he introduces a formula, if you will. And this formula starts in 29 and makes its way through the entirety of verse 30. And the formula, let's just look at verse 29. It says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. How can we know? What's the crescendo of Paul's argument? Not just of how we can know, but the crescendo of the argument of Romans 8 altogether. How can we be certain, brothers and sisters, that there is no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus? How can we be certain that we are sons of God? How can we be certain that the spirit is groaning, that our inward being is not just some longing to be free from mortality, not a, instead of a longing for glory, a longing of heaven? How can we be sure? How can we be certain? And what Paul anchors all of his arguments in Romans 8 is, he reaches back all the way into eternity past. He says, if you want to be certain, let's reach back and see the glory of God and all that he has done before you knew anything, before you existed, before the foundations of the world were set. And there and there alone is the greatest anchor of our security. There is the greatest anchor of our security. It is a strange thing that we do. We always try to anchor our security in something that we can tangibly latch hold on instead of anchoring it where God has prescribed. The whole crescendo of Paul's argument is let's look at who God is and what God has done. And if we can understand that, then there will be really no room for questioning if God is working together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Even more so than that, if we pay attention to the immediate context of this verse 18 and following, you will notice there is an overarching theme of adoption. We must not, and I fear that we do this far too often than we care to admit, we must not detach the immediate context of this verse from the rest of Romans 8. It's almost as if what Paul is doing is he's grabbing hold of adoption and he's dragging it further and further and further back. He, lead, he, he points us to the finished work of Jesus Christ as the means of our adoption. But brothers and sisters, where did the work of adoption begin? Where did it start? Where, where did God begin to love us as sons and daughters? And what Paul is aiming to do here, I am convinced, is anchoring the grounds of our adoption in eternity past. And if we can see ourselves there, if we can understand and believe what the scriptures teach in regard to this, then we will have an absolute confidence in not only the work of God that we experience here, but the work of God that will ultimately be our perfect conformity to the beloved son. That glorification that we speak of, 
the conclusion of this chain, this perfect golden chain of redemption, as it is often called, is glorification. How certain can we be? Maybe a better question is this. How often do you wonder? How often are you concerned with that certainty? Do you ever find yourself questioning, will God actually bring to completion that which he began? Do you find yourself stressing, thinking that, oh, well, this is based upon me. I must labor. I must do all of this work to be certain that I reach the point of glorification. And I'm not demeaning obedience. Obedience is necessary. Obedience is perfect fruit that's born of love. But hear me, saint. God has predestined that glorification will occur. God has predestined that sanctification will occur. And God has not only predestined the end, but the means as well. And if we understand this, we will see that the confidence of our adoption is in the reality that God has perfectly paved the way and predestined everything to come to fruition. And so let's examine this very verse. What is the ground of our confidence? Well, the ground of our confidence, the ground of our hope and our certainty and adoption is really laid out for us in verse 29, for those whom he foreknew. So we'll begin today. That's where we'll pay very close attention for just a moment. What does this word actually mean? And man, I wish that there was a better word that we had for the English language so that we can understand what's actually being conveyed here because this word has been so destroy. I mean, it's just like the stuff that people do to this word to remove it of its beauty is astonishing. They have stripped it of all of its glory by essentially making some appeal to the fact that foreknew actually is implying simply God's omniscience. Hear me when I say this. God is perfectly omniscient, meaning that he knows the beginning from the end. There is nothing outside of his intellectual prowess. There is nothing that he does not know. He is omniscient altogether. So we must immediately affirm that reality. And then we must quickly deny that foreknow is speaking of his omniscience. It is not speaking of his omniscience, brothers and sisters. And anyone who tells you that it is speaking of his omniscience is trying to steal from you one of the greatest hopes and the greatest glories revealed in the scriptures. They're taking the turkey from you at Thanksgiving. Here we see one of the most transcendent, glorious realities that I have ever come to in the scriptures. And I mean that. I cannot think of anything that, that is more astonishing than the reality that foreknow is not just about omniscience. Instead, if we pay very close attention to the way this word is used inside of the scriptures, this is rooting, this is laying out for us an eternal love. Let me just give you a couple of the ways that this word is used in the New Testament, and then perhaps we'll pay attention to some in the Old. Romans eleven two 2, in the same epistle, he says, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Well, that has to do with omniscience. He foreknew omnisciently everyone. Well, what about Matthew 7, 23, when it says this, and then will I declare to them, this is that great warning passage, I never knew you. Are you telling me? That the omniscient God didn't know these men who were walking up. They, he didn't have an awareness, an intellectual awareness of the men who come forward and tell him that they have cast out demons in his name. Most certainly not. God knew them. As a matter of fact, God knows them in the sense that he is omniscient of everything that they have done, including their motives, which is the very reason in which God is casting them away. Of course he knew them, but here it says he did not know them. 1 Peter 1, 20, 21, speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Are you telling me that this verse is speaking of God the Father's intellectual knowledge of God the Son? We can assume that that would most certainly be a given. And in particular, in 1 Peter 1.20, it's making reference to the eternal love that God the Father has on God the Son. 
It's rather clear, speaking of his just knowledge of the second person of the Godhead seems rather redundant. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world. He was beloved before the foundation of the world. And then 1 Peter 1, 2, speaking of a particular people, it says in verse one, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for spring with his blood. In Amos chapter two, it speaks of Israel as the people God has known. It says that he alone has known Israel. Are you telling me he wasn't aware of the Moabites? That the Canaanites were an obscurity to him, that he did not know them, their custom, their ways, that he did not knit them together in the womb? He knows them. But that is not what we are speaking of when we read this word no. If we pay close attention even to the way that the translators of the Septuagint wrote of intimate love between a husband and a wife, Adam knew his wife Eve. Cain knew his wife and bore a child. Brothers and sisters, the scriptures are abundantly clear about this word. It is not just intellect. It is not awareness. It is affection. Now here's what is miraculous about this. This no, this concept of affection most certainly should be how we understand this. But what I find to be rather troubling is that not only have we robbed foreknown of its glory, we have replaced it with something that is borderline heretical altogether. Perhaps it is you've heard this phrase. Perhaps it is that you've used it. And I'm doing my best to be gentle all the while being incredibly thrilled about the glory that is before me. Brothers and sisters, foreknowledge is not God looking down the corridors of time and seeing all that you have done to merit salvation. That is what is often conveyed to us. It is often understood, it's often assumed that what's actually occurring in God's foreknowledge is that he's looking down the eternal corridors of time and that he's seeing the work that you have done and then based upon the work that you have done, he has then predestined you or foreknown you for adoption as sons. This is not so. Let me give you three basic understandings of this. The first is that God looked down the corridors of time and saw your faith. Ephesians 2 makes it abundantly clear. Faith is a gift. How is it that you come to possess it? You come to possess it based upon God's grace to you, to offer you, to give you, to birth in you faith. Even if he was looking down the corridors of time to see faith, it was the faith that he birthed. Or perhaps it is that he looked down the corridors of time in some intellectual way, this foreknown that is often presented to you. And he saw you seeking after God. Well, first, that's just a clear violation of scripture in the first place. Romans 3 says, no one seeks God in the immediate context of the book. There's no concept of man seeking after God in his own natural ability. Foreknown is not God looking down the corridors of time and seeing you exercise faith. It is not seeing you moving toward God and then God moving towards you. And it is most certainly not your or mine moral excellency. Do a brief examination of your life and ask the question, is there anything morally excellent in me that would attract the holy and infinitely just God to look at me, regard me, and take me as his bride? Most certainly not. No, brothers and sisters, we are not looking at God's omniscience. We are looking at, if we were to appropriately define this, a word that captures in essence the foreloving of our God. He has set his affection on us since before the foundation of the world. Now, many would come and as we've already mentioned, ask, well, what is the origin? What is the root? Where does this love flow from? And if there has been any misunderstanding in this category, we will rob ourselves of such comfort. We will rob ourselves of all the security that I think this verse conveys. What is behind the foreloving of God? What is its origin? What is its beginning? Is it our esteemable glory? Is it our lovableness? Is it our moral excellency? Is it our moving toward God? Is it our faith? Brothers and sisters, no. Behind the love of God is nothing but the love of God. 
When we speak of grace, when we speak of the unique grace of God toward his particular people, ultimately what we are conveying is the unique unmerited love of God bestowed. That's what we are speaking of. We are speaking of a God who has looked to a particular people who have loved them, who set his affection, his loving embrace on them before they had done either good nor bad, before they were knit together in their mother's womb. Brothers and sisters, what we are seeing is the love of God that is nothing but love. We don't even have a category for this. In the midst of my loving, in the best possible moments of my love, it most certainly is not a foreknown love. And I can assure you it is not an unmerited love. I offer almost no one unmerited and certainly not eternal, perfect love. And yet what we find in just the introduction of this verse is a love that is eternal. The cause of this foreknowledge is the unmerited, amazing grace of God, which today we will rightly and simply call love. Before you were being knit together in your mother's womb, before the country you resided in was established, you were loved. Before David sat on the throne, you were loved. Before Moses heard from the Lord in the burning bush, you were loved. Before Abraham was sent to sacrifice Isaac on the altar, you were loved. Before Noah boarded the ark, you were loved. Before Adam ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, saint, You were loved. I cannot push this back far enough. I cannot shove the love of God back far enough. If I am to communicate in any simple way to argue about the love of God, its origin, and ultimately we will see it here in a moment, its end, we would have to say that the love of God for his people began, came into existence with him, the eternal God. That is its origin. I cannot push it back far enough, for if I try, I would then be longing to look into things that are not for my eyes to behold. The love of God, the foreknowledge of God, is not a looking down the corridors of time. It is a unique and glorious affection set on a particular people. Let no one rob you of this glory. It is easy for people to come into this, to look at it and say, ah, but we understand this word as knowledge, as looking in. That is not the biblical understanding of this word. Let no one steal this from you. And I know perhaps I'm beating a dead horse at this point, but I'm convinced that when we miss this, we miss the greatest hope, the greatest security that we have. That the love of God came to me. That the love of God was set on me. He knew me. He died for me while I was yet a sinner. That when he elected me unto salvation, when he foreknew me, he foreknew me in eternity past. This is the anchor and ground of all of my hope. If this is not true, brothers and sisters, I really don't know what to offer you. Because at this point, if this is not foreknown in the sense that he has given you this unmerited love, then you must then base the security of your own soul on your own ability to keep yourself. You drew him to to yourself in the first place. So you must ever constantly be laboring to keep his love. No, brothers and sisters, no. He has given you this love. Born of grace. Nothing we have done to draw him to ourselves. nothing that we have done to merit it. Instead, it is his free, endless, boundless, eternal grace lavished on a particular people. This is the ground of our predestination. We must not miss this because this is the natural progression. Those whom he foreknew, then, then he predestined. Now, before we go further, I want to offer you one word of confidence. The first is this. He has loved us. Never has a past tense been so eternal. When he said, when we say that he has loved us, he has loved us into eternity past. Now, if I could for a moment apply that to your immediate context, brother or sister, perhaps it is that you have failed, that you have faltered, that you have struggled with sin, that you have uh, failed to repent. Hear me, if you be in the Lord Jesus Christ, I want you to be wooed as it were by his love. He has loved you. He is, if you be in the Lord Jesus Christ, he is loving you. He is loving you. This is not up for negotiation. His love does not change. If we could just anchor this as it were in the immutability of God who changes not. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so the love that he had for you in eternity past is the very same love that he has for you in this very present moment. If we can be comforted by anything, 
It is that no matter what is going on in the world around us, no matter how ugly we actually are, how needful we are of love, we know this, God is loving us. That eternal love that was given to me is the same eternal love that rests and resides on me in this very moment. Saying we must never wonder if we are the loved of God. You are the beloved of God. Most certainly it is based upon the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, but its root, its anchor, its origin is in eternity past. And what great hope that gives us then for the question of will he keep loving me? The eternal love, its origin was in eternity past that is present for us today will most certainly never falter. It, this love will last as long as he does. We speak of him rightly as the eternal one who knows no beginning and end. Revelation begins and ends with the simple phrase, I am the alpha and the omega. The love of God is an eternal, unmerited, wondrous love, and it should be the anchor and ground for all of our hope, and it should help us all the more understand what comes next. The word that we are about to deal with is a word that I remember aiming to explain away. And in so doing, I robbed myself of the great confidence that I have that God in his eternal love has predestined me for a good purpose. Let me explain this to you rather simply. The word predestined means exactly what it says. I mean, sometimes it's not theology, it's English. And in this particular case, brothers and sisters, we are looking at a word that deals with God's right God's sovereignty, God's supremacy, God's glory, and his dominion. God has in his eternal, unmerited, glorious love predestined something. He has predetermined. This simply means that he has intended an end and God's intended end will come to pass. Can I be, honestly, when I began to work through this in my own soul, 19, 20 years old, I began to work through the concept that predestined can also be translated or understood as this is God's promise. This is the reality that he has set forth. He has promised you that this will be the end. And if we can understand it from that capacity, you would understand that not a single soul in the world has the right to promise anything but God who has the absolute right because he has absolute authority. He has absolute sovereignty. He is able to use all things for our good, nothing outside of his control. And so when he says that he has predestined, it means that he has not given some roundabout plan that he hopes will come to pass. That is not what the word means. It is not just that he has determined an end. It is that he has determined the end and the means that arrive us at the end. It's the reason that when we read passages like Acts 2 and we see the definite plan and foreknowledge of God delivered up Christ to be crucified, and yet it was by the hands of lawless men that he was nailed to the tree. He has predestined these glorious things to come to pass. They will come to pass. They will not fail. No enemy will stand against it. No soldier will ever war against God successfully. His predetermined purposes will come to fruition. Now, here's a question. And I think perhaps this is one of the most important questions or one of the most regular questions asked in regard to God's predestination. Well, then, does that mean that I am not free? They're saying... For some reason, perhaps due to our arrogance, we believe that God's predestined purposes, that God's excellent will is not able to be harmonized with human responsibility. Hear me, you are responsible. You are a responsible agent inside of everything that we have just discussed. This is not a violation of God's sovereignty. As a matter of fact, it seems very clear in the scriptures that God's sovereignty and man's responsibility are clearly indicated. At one point in Spurgeon's ministry, he was asked, how do you reconcile God's sovereignty and man's responsibility? His immediate response was, we don't reconcile friends. 
And here we understand, it is not an assault on your freedom of the will in the truest sense of the word. Most certainly before you are converted, you are bound to sin and you need to be released from it. Which by the way, should cause you to praise the Lord for his predestined purposes to free you from it. And since we have been freed from all of sin, snare and bondage, we go confidently knowing that God has freed us. So now we experience in this particular moment, true freedom like we've never had before. But let me tell you when you will be most free. You will be most free, saint, when you no longer have the ability to sin. Then you will be most free. For some reason, we think of the freedom of the will, of uh, of this desire, this thought of I can do whatever I want. For some reason, when we argue this, I think we fail to understand that what we're arguing against is essentially the means by which God will save you. God saves by his predetermined purposes and by the execution of all the promises that we are going to work through in verse 30. And so he has predestined. That means that the ends will come. That means that he uses the agency of men even to bring about these ends. He executes perfectly his perfect plan of redemption and he uses secondary means. He uses our decisions, our workings, our desires to bring about the end. And so what do we understand? God has most certainly predestined. The end will come to pass, the means as well. But I think for us, if we understand it from the most biblical of perspectives, what does it mean that we have been predestined? It means that God's purpose for us will come to pass. Not might, not if, will. One of my favorite verses in Matthew is Matthew 121. It's the giving of the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it says rather clearly, you will call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sin. There's a great hope in that simple word, will. God's plans are not subject to failure. And when God has predestined an end, the predestined end will come to pass. Will, will. Now, then I would ask you, what security does this offer to us? How should we understand this word predestined? How can it help us? How can it encourage us and strengthen us in our walk with the Lord Jesus Christ and our hope for the future? The first is this, his love is the origin of our predestination. His love is the origin of our predestination. Let's pay close attention to the verse again. Verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, for those whom he foreknew, he then also predestined us to be conformed to the image of his son. What is the origin of our God's predestination of a particular people? First, it's born of this love that we have spoken of. It's born of this boundless grace, this boundless love, this unmerited favor lavished upon an individual. And then he predestined us, predestines us for a particular end. Now, what is that end? Because we really need to understand all of this in its wholeness and not just its individual phrases. So those whom he foreknew, those who he loved before the foundation of the world, those who he set his affection on in eternity past, he then predestined that that particular end would come to fruition. What then is that end? The end is to be conformed to the image of his son. It always amazes me that this verse is so heavily attacked because the end is so good. It's like, if I'm gonna assault something, I'm gonna assault something that is ultimately an offense to me. But here I see that God's foreknowledge, his love of a particular people, the church, he then predestines us to not a heinous end, but a wondrous end. And perhaps it is that you would look at this and you would say, oh, I don't know if I want to be conformed to the image of his son. If, if, if those words come out of your mouth or if they enter into your mind, hear me, you may not know him. Because if you know him, you've seen him as infinitely lovely. You've seen him in all of his glory and splendor. You've seen that great love clearly displayed at the cross of Christ. And then you would look and say, "Uh, I do not know if I want to be conformed to the image of his beloved son. If you love him, this is your greatest longing. This is, as it were in Romans 8, 28, the good that he is working together for. Dear saint, if your longing, if your desire, if the, if the joy that you look forward to in eternity is not conformity to the image of Christ, then you have a misunderstanding of heaven. Because here we see that the ultimate end is our conformity to the image of his son. What has he predestined us? What has he lovingly predestined us for? to be conformed to the image of his beloved son. 
Now let's deal with that for a moment. What does it mean that he's gonna conform us to the image of his son? We speak of it often as progressive sanctification, but here I would say that it is not only the progressive means by which God is actively molding us into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ, but it is the conclusion of that process, meaning glorification. I think Romans 8, 30 really lays this out for us. And those whom he predestined, he called. Those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he glorified. The end conclusion, dear saint, is that you will, again, let's go back to that word, will, will, not might, not if, not perhaps, will be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. God's purposes and plans of redemption will not fail or falter. They are perfect. The end will actually come to fruition. God is not slow in keeping his promises here. It is quite clear that we will be conformed to the image of his son. What does that mean for us? It means that we will, hear me, We will possess, possess perfect righteousness. And I know, I know we're speaking of justification here for just a moment. Justification being the fact that we are imputed that perfect righteousness, that it is laid on us, that it clothes us. But dear saint, in eternity past, that cloak that covers you will will ultimately become a part of you. You will possess perfect righteousness. That cloak that covers you, God will eradicate every sin you have ever committed. It has been eradicated as it were in the cross of Christ. And when you are glorified, you are made like him in every way. Righteousness is the crown of glory that we will have in eternity. Dear saint, the cloak that he has given us will still most certainly be our cloak. It'll still be the only grounds of confidence that we have there, but he completes this glorious work by making us righteous. We stand there made righteous by his righteousness alone. Secondly, glory. If I could summarize glory, it's this weight, it's this beauty. And goodness, we fail to, I think, observe beauty when we see it. What a wonderful day it will be when all that has made me ugly when all that has stained me, when all wickedness that corrupts me will be infinitely and eternally cast away from me and I will stand there glorified, there will be a unique glory as it were in that blessed place. Every saint conformed to the image of his son. And not only righteousness and glory, but incorruptibility. I still am amazed that the promise for eternity is that I will be unable to sin. I will be unable to corrupt that which he has bestowed upon me. And in eternity, that conformity to the image of Jesus Christ will mean that I am incorruptible, that he has secured, that he has protected, that he has made certain that there will be no corruption in that blessed and eternal place. He has promised conformity to his beloved son. There is righteousness, there is glory, there is incorruptibility. And if I were to sum it up in a simple phrase, I would say that there is a glorious family resemblance. When you sit at that table, no one will ask why you are there. And some of you wrestle to come to this one. Dear saint, if you are in the Lord Jesus Christ, then this table belongs to you. If you are in the Lord Jesus Christ, then we eat this table knowing that there will be a day when all the saints of God will gather at the wedding feast and all of them will bear the image of the Son of God. They will bear the image of the blessed Christ. They will be conformed to his image. There will be a wondrous family resemblance at that table. And so I would simply say, praise be to God that he has predestined me for this end. It is not made possible, dear saint, by the foreknowledge and predestination of God. It is promised to you. It is predestined. It will come to pass. There is no holiness. There is no piousness in wondering if God will conform you to the image of Jesus Christ. In essence, as it were, it is an undermining of his own perfect righteousness. He has promised, he has predestined these things to come to pass. And if that be the case, we have an absolute confidence knowing that we will be conformed. It is not possibility, it is certainty. We will be, dear saint, conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. Now, let's progress. 
It says, to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. There are two words that I think we gloss over rather quickly in this text. And the first is in order. In order, meaning that if you take this phrase in order and you reach all the way back up, everything that we have just discussed, its anchor is in this in order that. What is the end? What's the purpose of all of these things coming to pass? What's the purpose of God's foreknowledge? What's the purpose of his eternal love that was set? What's the purpose of his predestination for his particular people? What's the purpose? What's the end? Even in conforming these people that God has lovingly predestined to the image of Christ. What's the purpose of this? Well, the purpose is rooted in this simple phrase, that he might, isn't it interesting that all of this has been dealing with how God works for the individual, how God works for the church. And then there is this interjection in order that he, in order that he, as it were, might be the firstborn among many brothers. What is the whole purpose of everything that we have discussed. It is the preeminence and the glory of Jesus. I find this to be one of the greatest grounds of confidence as well, that he has rooted his own reputation in my being perfectly kept. Like when we deal with like Psalm 23 and we're thinking through that, that wonderful Psalm of the good shepherd, There's a phrase that's interjected inside of that that we often overlook. It says, for his name's sake. The reason he's the good shepherd, the reason he oversees, the reason that we lie down by streams of water and that we enjoy the pastures that God has set us in, the reason that all of these things are ours or why? Because his name's sake must be honored, made much of, made glorious. When Moses is standing on the mountain after Israel has rebelled, what does Moses say to God? He says, no, 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 they'll, they'll, they'll defame your name if you wipe them out. His glory is what is preeminent. His glory is what is most important in the midst of all of this. The reason that we have such confidence is not just in the fact that he has predestined these ends. It is because his glory and preeminence are ultimately on the line. And I cannot think of anything that the Lord Jesus will defend more than the glory of God. And here we see that in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Brothers and sisters, what this means is that this whole section is essentially exalting Christ's preeminence. It is saying that most certainly there will be many brothers. Most certainly we will be conformed to the image of Christ. Why? So that we can see and view Jesus as the preeminent one, as the exalted one. We can see him as he is. And here we see this, just to kind of lay this out, he is first in glory. Tell me, brother or sister, tell me of something more glorious than the incarnate son. Offer me anything more splendid, anything more beautiful, anything more heavy and weighty and lovely. I'll wait. There's nothing more glorious than him. He possesses full deity. He was made like his brothers in every way. If we understand this rightly, then we understand that he is first in glory. He is crowned, as it were, with glory and honor and immortality. These belong to him. And not only in glory, but in righteousness. Consider, if you would, in the high courts of heaven, the omniscient eye of God searching through the work of Jesus Christ. Is there any stain? Is there anything that he has failed at? Is there any faltering in him? Is there any lack of love for the Father in him? No, none, none. The omniscient, eternally wise eye of the perfect judge searches through him and finds nothing. As a matter of fact, forgive me, that is untrue. He finds perfect righteousness and lavishes on him every gift because he is worthy of them. He is perfect in glory. He is preeminent in righteousness. And he is also first in the resurrection. He is the firstborn. Oh, to see him conquer death. We look at the resurrection, I find that often, even around Easter, we fixate, and, and not, not foolishly so, but we fixate on the crucifixion. We're right to consider, to meditate upon, to see the work of substitutionary atonement in the crucifixion of our Lord. But we often overlook the resurrection of the dead. He tramples death underfoot. He tramples death underfoot, not just for himself, but for all of his brothers. He conquers death, as it were. He is the preeminent one in destroying death. He is the firstborn. 
If I were to sum this up, it would be as Colossians lays it out. He is the preeminent one, period. I care not what you bring. If it is good, if it is right, if it is holy, then it belongs to him. He is the preeminent one. He is the firstborn of all creation. He is the firstborn from the dead. He is the head of the church. He possesses all of these things. And if I could include one more thing, he is the one who has received all reward. He is the one who has received the ultimate inheritance, as it were. Belongs to him. Every every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places that somehow we possess are only rightly due to Jesus Christ. He is the one that has the right of possession. We simply have right of possession by our co-heirship, by the fact that he is willing to call us brother. Can I give you a picture of this for just a moment? I wanna turn our attention to Hebrews chapter two. What does it mean that Jesus Christ is the firstborn among many brothers? I'm gonna be honest with you. As I approach this, the idea that Jesus would call me brother is absurd on its face. It's absurd. He's the preeminent one. He's the glorious one. He's the righteous one. He's the holy one. And here I am, one who has rebelled against the glory of God since my birth. And then he has, in his infinite grace, the Father has foreknown, predestined to bring about the conformity to the image of Jesus Christ. And he is still willing, even though he provides everything necessary so that I can rightly be called brother, to actually bestow that title upon me. I love what Hebrews chapter two, let's just read through this. I'm gonna read a big section. It's fine, it's infallible. Hebrews 2, 10. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why, hear me, he is not ashamed to call them brothers saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Do you see your elder brother condescend be made like us in every way, go to death, ultimately to defeat death by death, freeing us from slavery to fear. And going forward, it says this, for surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in his service to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. And here's where chapters will ruin glory for you. Therefore, holy brothers. Then Paul leans into the commands. He says, look at your elder brother. See his glory, see his transcendence, see his work, see his even now ever-present mediation for you. You look there and you see the firstborn from the dead. And then Paul, in the midst of this, or the writer of Hebrews, sorry. Then in the midst of this, he turns to the brothers and calls them holy. All born from our elder brother from our glorious Christ. Now, an important note here. If I were to sum this up quickly, what is our hope and certainty? What is our ground of assurance? First, he calls us brother. He calls us brother and sister. He bestows that title upon us and he has done everything that was necessary to make that so. Not only that, because his brothers by adoption and new birth, which is interesting dynamic that in the new birth, there is a process of adoption as well, that you have both of these things laid out for us, that those who are his brothers by adoption and new birth will look like him. We will look like him because his brothers then will be with him. If you pay close attention to John 17, if you're working through that, you'll notice there's this prayer on behalf of God's people from the lips of our Lord, from the lips of our elder brother, our high priest. And he says, I want them to be with me. I want them to dwell with me. I want them to dine at the table with me. I want them to be my brothers in eternity. And because he is, hear me, because our elder brother is, is the pleasure of the father. He is the delight of the father. And whose image will you be conformed to? Who will you look like? 
Brothers and sisters, today, today, you are the pleasure of the Father, and you will be the pleasure of the Father. All of this, all of this is rooted. I want you to go back. That eternal anchor is the foreknowledge of God. This is why it's so important that we must never let anyone rob us of this. Because if they take that, they take everything else. It becomes all about you holding on to some some affection from God based upon your own outworkings. You have been robbed of all your security. You've been robbed of all of your hope and all of the ground of assurance that God has given you, even in his predestination of you to the conformity to the image of Christ. Now, I want to conclude here. I want to conclude in this simple word that we often overlook in the word many. We read through this, and I think I have for a long time read through this and thought about all of these transcendent words. And there's this little bitty word, many. And Matthew Henry knocks it out of the park. He says, there is therefore a certain number predestined that the, that the end of Christ's undertaking might be infallibly secured. Had the event been left at uncertainties in the divine counsels to depend upon the contingent turn of man's will, Christ might have been the firstborn among but few or no brethren. A captain without soldiers and a prince without subjects to pervert which and to secure to him many brethren. The decree is absolute. The thing ascertained that he might be sure to see his seed. There is a remnant predestined to be conformed to his image, which decree will certainly have its accomplishments in the holiness and happiness of that chosen race. And so in spite of all the opposition of the powers of darkness, Christ will be the firstborn among many very many brothers. Dear Saint, the reason that we can say with certainty, many, is because God has foreknown many. And in his foreknowing many, he has predestined many. Now, if I could make an appeal to your evangelism, many, many, many sons to glory many conform to the image of Christ, many singing the praises of Christ because he is worthy of them, many exalting, as it were, Revelation would say a multitude without number. Every single Lord's day where we partake of the table, I'm reminded of this word many by the fact that there are still cups left on this table. Dear Saint, our Lord Jesus Christ has perfectly redeemed many. And it is our responsibility, as we will see in the coming weeks, to go forth proclaiming the gospel of our beloved Lord Jesus Christ, to make much of him, to tell of his name in the congregation, to tell every soul that we have the ability to of the glory and the goodness of Jesus Christ, to tell of knowledge, of, 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 of love that has no beginning nor end, to tell of blood sufficient to save, to tell of a spirit who is able to redeem and to keep. You see, the end of this is confidence, but it is not only confidence for the individual It is confidence as we go forth proclaiming because we have many brothers. And today is still the day of salvation. We go forth proclaiming a certain salvation. We go forth proclaiming with absolute confidence that he will bring many sons to glory. Let's pray.